Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 265 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope. Our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we are into glorious late spring and early summer. Absolutely my favorite season. I just love being outside. And I don't know about you, but my podcast listening goes up when the weather is nice. That's because I'm doing stuff like mowing the lawn and out on my bike and like out for walks. So I've already binge listened uh, this spring and I hope you're doing the same. And if you happen to be tuning in for the first time or you are a regular listener, you're going to love today's guest. His name is Les McEwen. This is his third time on the podcast. He was on on episodes 112 and episode number 206 as well. And uh, I, I just love how generous he is with leaders. And Les is one of those people that when he talks, I see my whole leadership life flash before my eyes. So we've already talked about the seven stages of business, which you should go back and listen to those other episodes, 112 and 206, because he goes through it in detail, but he gives you the quick recap at the beginning of this intro. Then he talks about visionaries, operators, and processors. And today we're going to talk about scale. And it's a fantastic interview. And we talk about what is the difference between growth and scale, what gets in the way of growth, what gets in the way of scale, and then how to basically position yourself on a team or as the senior leader to help your company, your church grow. But the reality is 94% of all churches aren't growing not as fast as their community or they're plateaued or they're declining. And I literally get the opportunity to meet with hundreds, if not thousands of church leaders face-to-face every year. And I know how discouraging that can be. So I've got a brand new resource that we just released called the Church Growth Masterclass. And I know that's kind of a big name and Here's the reality. I, I can't make your church grow and you can't make your church grow. But I really believe that there are things that we do as leaders that can position our church to grow. God is really in charge of growth, but there are things I can do as a leader that get in the way. And there are things I can do as a leader that really help. And that's what the Church Growth Masterclass is all about. And it really takes a lot of the lessons that I've learned over the last two and a bit decades in leadership where we started with just a handful of people and now serve over 1,500 people on the weekend, uh, thousands more online. And we have seen people that we never dreamed would be reached with the gospel. And we've seen that happen in a post-Christian, post-modern context. So Church Growth Masterclass has a couple of editions, a starter edition, and then also an advanced edition. It can help you with things like our church isn't growing at all and we're stuck and we have no vision. Well, how do you recapture vision? How do you understand the culture? How do you position your church to speak into the culture in a way that's biblically authentic? And then some churches are growing, like they're attracting new people, but they just can't get past their current plateau. So there's new people all the time, but like you've been 200 people for a while or 150 people for a while or 400 people for a while. How do you scale that? Well, that's what we talk about in the Church Growth Masterclass. Now, what you need to know is that the offer that we have on right now for the Masterclass, the introductory pricing, ends tomorrow. So if you haven't checked out churchgrowthmasterclass.com, make sure you don't miss out. I am so excited to get this resource in the hands of leaders because I hope it can help you take away some of the invisible barriers, some of the things that you and your team maybe have missed because we missed it along the way and then we picked it up and man, we, we cracked you know, those issues, 
we really started to see people reached. And that's my sincere hope for you. So head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com. Make sure you don't miss out before the price goes up tomorrow. Yeah, that's happening tomorrow, Wednesday, May 22nd. So you can always get the course, but you'll get the very best pricing if you act now. Hey, there's a fun little video on YouTube and uh, the challenge with that is two younger people, two kids trying to dial a rotary phone in four minutes. They have no idea how to do it. And a few of us remember rotary phones, barely for me. Uh, Just an example of how things have changed and even how the way we communicate in society keeps changing. And we really do live in a media generation and people are consuming more content online than ever before. If your church or business is not speaking the language of media, then you will not be able to reach people today. Plain and simple. Think about podcasting. Didn't really exist a decade ago. It is exploding across the globe today. That's why a partner like Pro Media Fire is vital. Their team of graphic designers, they got video editors, and they will create custom videos and graphics for you each month for a flat rate. Now, if you need some fire for your content and your social media, check out Pro Media Fire. Listeners of this podcast receive 10% off plans for life at promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's C-A-R-E-Y. So head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry and you will get 10% off for life. Well, without further ado, here is my conversation with author, entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, and brilliant leader, Les McEwen, as we talk about growth and scale and how that impacts your leadership. Here we go. Well, it's such a thrill, Les, to have you back on the podcast. Welcome back. It's great to be back, Carrie. I've always enjoyed our conversations. Well, you've helped a lot of leaders. And uh, why don't we start here for those who uh, just give us the like real quick summary of the body of your work. First time you were here. Today, we're going to talk about scale and what are the keys to scaling. Uh, but we talked about predictable success and the seven phases that every organization, business, startup, church, if those of you who are transitioning organizations, uh, that was the first episode, uh, the first time I had you on. And last time we talked about teams and visionaries, operators, and processors. And again, these are matrices that, that I have in my head. They're just part of my working knowledge and they're part of any team I'm involved in. It's like, huh, do you think that that, organizations in treadmill? You think that, that church is right. in death rattle? Are we in startup? Are we in fun? Uh, operator, visionary, processor, they've been so helpful for literally tens of thousands of leaders who listen to this podcast. But give us the uh, the elevator pitch on both of those because they, I think, set up uh, what we're going to talk about with scale so well. Sure. Well, the, as you beautifully summarized there, Kerry, essentially my life's work is helping leaders scale grow their organizations. That's what I do. Uh, I got into it, fell into it by being a serial entrepreneur, though it was so long ago we didn't have that phrase back then. Started over 40 businesses myself. And as I say to people, even a dumb Irishman, which is what I am, is going to start seeing repeating patterns if you do something that frequently. And I did. I started to see frequent patterns, stuff that repeated over and over again in in, uh, growing organizations began to realize that this was something that if I dug deep enough was a holistic model, not something I invented, just something that I recognized. And uh, what I've essentially done for folks is put together shared vocabulary. I've found intuitive ways to describe something that almost everybody I work with says, you know, I 
think I knew that. I just didn't know how to express it. And now I, I know what the stage I'm in is fun. It is fun, right? And, I, I, and then I hit whitewater and that's what it felt like. So what I've done essentially is I've recognized what the patterns of growth are in any sort of organization, for profit or not for profit. I've codified it and now I help leaders take that methodology and use it to grow their organizations. Yeah. So can you give us the, just real quick, the seven stages of predictable, well, predictable success is in the middle, but basically your work in that area. So every organization goes through seven stages. Because when you, when I read that for the first time and reached out to you, I'm like, my whole leadership life flashed before my eyes. Like I, I could, you've described every situation I've ever been in. I've seen this all over the place. And again, I think you were able to name what every leader experiences. Sure. So the seven stages, if you think of an arc, it's like a a lobbing a ball goes up in the air and comes back down again. Um, Growth life cycle is exactly the same. So we've got seven stages. There are three that are growth stages, the peak stage, predictable success, talk about in a second or so. And then there are three decline stages. What's really important to bear in mind before I go through them, however, is that unlike a human life cycle, you don't have to, as an organization, go through the decline phases. What my life's work about is trying to help people not begin that slide, that decline. So the stages are, first of all, early struggle. That's what it is, early struggle. Mm -hmm. It's a struggle to find a market. If it's a commercial organization, a market for your product or services. If you're a cause-based organization, it might sound mercenary, but it's a market for what you're trying to do and achieve. So early struggle... Um, it's it's probably the second, it's not probably, it's the second most dangerous stage uh, for any organization because the mortality rate is so high. 80% right. of all new ventures fail in the first three years. For the 20% that make it, and we might be we might touch briefly um, in a minute or two about what makes it and what doesn't make it, but the 20% that make it, they hit the first real growth stage. I call it fun because that's what it is. It's the it stage that feels most natural. It's like, okay, that's what we were here for. We did it. We found our market. Let's go. Let's open another campus. Let's, you know, let's bring water to, you know, 17 states that don't have water. Let's sell more plastic extrusion than the world could ever use. It just feels like fun. We've found our market and we've got a lot of low hanging fruit and we get very evangelical and we grow like crazy. And then at some point that very growth brings with it complexity. Our organization has grown, it's become more complex. We were running up using our gut. Board meeting was a right up in the elevator during fun. We just made decisions on the fly, made them happen overnight. Uh, and then complexity slows us down. We hit a stage I call whitewater. And in whitewater, we just start dropping the ball. Um, That visceral way of running the organization begins to tap out. We can't just think that we have got the golden god answer to everything. We've got to do something that feels a little unnatural at the start, which is to put systems and processes in place. We've got to start owning information. We've got to start knowing more than just what our gut tells us. And so we've got a choice at that point. Do we want to do that or do we just want to go back to fun? That's a perfectly fine thing to do. You can just say, wait a minute, I don't like this and I don't want to go any further with it. I liked it the way it was. And so you go back, but you've got to accept there'll always be a cap in your growth if you do that. And you think about most mom and pop businesses, classic example of businesses that have decided to stay in fun. They want it that, that way. The little um, donut shop that you go to, you know, they don't want to have, you don't want to be Dunkin' Donuts. They just want to have one, two, three units. But if you decide you want to keep growing, you've got to get through whitewater. 
calls for putting in systems and processes, but also calls for a big behavioral mindset change, which is really what the second book is all about, to move into predictable success. And predictable success is the apex. The difference between it and fun is that fun has always got a cap, as we've seen, and how, how you can grow. Predictable success, we've now put the systems and processes in place that allow us to scale to whatever size our industry or our market will allow. Right. We'll talk, I'm sure, a bit more about that in a minute or two. And is it is it correct, Les? This is the way I think of it. I just want to make sure I'm accurate when I share this with my team. But it is, you hold intention the entrepreneurial zeal, that's not gone. The ideas, the, the culture with the system. So the problem with fun is it's all ideas. It's just working, but it doesn't grow. It's not scalable. It stays small. And then the problem on the other side of decline is you have all systems, but the entrepreneurs are all gone. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, and funny, you, you do grow. There's no doubt about it. You grow like crazy, but you, the way you're doing it is, um, shall we say, a bit, you, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, six-year-olds play soccer. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. it's Coached it's flock it's flock ball, right? It's yeah. just twenty two players, including both goalkeepers, in one heap, and the ball is under there somewhere, and there's a dust cloud above them, and <laughs> wherever the ball goes, they go, and that's how we grow in fun. We just do we yeah. just massive effort towards stuff, and it's it's fantastic. All that entrepreneurialism and all the rest of it. You're quite right. In predictable success, we're saying, no, wait a minute, that's not enough anymore. We actually trip over ourselves. I mean, you can imagine a bunch of six-year-olds or even a, a, a semi-professional team with that approach, playing a team that knows how to play soccer, keeps to their positions, let the ball do the work. You get skinned alive. Predictable success is learning to play soccer at a professional level. I don't want to stretch that analogy too far. But if we keep that tension right, we can stay there in predictable success indefinitely. But the reality is, as you as you just teased out, what tends to happen is the same thing that happens when we do any good thing. We just did something that was painful, bringing in systems and processes, but it was really good. It helped us to get to this next stage in growth, the ability to scale and predictable success. So guess what? Let's do some more. We'll put some more systems and processes in place. We start to do, you know, Kaizen's. We have lean manufacturing. We, do, You know, we bring in more and more systems and processes, and that's what tilts us over into the decline stage. At first, we fall into a stage I call treadmill, sort of the mirror opposite of Whitewater. Whitewater, we were for the first time the underprocessed organization. Here in treadmill, for the first time, we're the overprocessed organization. It's just getting sluggish. We're getting a little arthritic. We're getting, you know, it's a little hard to get decisions made. It's very hard to get them implemented. We're making people jump through hoops. Checklists are appearing all over the place. We talk about compliance a lot, but that's a natural thing to have happen. But it is an absolutely existential moment in the existence of the organization. And you can see this in for-profits, you see it in churches, you see it in faith-based organizations. There's a critical decision to be made, which most people don't realize needs to be made, which is this. In treadmill, you can still recover. In treadmill, you can self-diagnose and you can say, this is crazy. Why should somebody have to fill in 13 fields in an online form just for us to contact them, right? Yeah. This is stupid. First name, email address, Let's, so in treadmill, you can take your foot off the brake, which is what it feels like when you've got too many systems and processes, and you can go back into predictable success. But if you don't, the organization will continue to decline, will fall into a stage which I call the big rut, the big rut. Mm -hmm. And essentially in, big, in the big rut, we lose the ability to self-diagnose. 
we like it like this. Everybody's in a comfort zone. Customers, the, the people that we serve, they're a pain in the neck. We have everything working perfectly. Um, you know, if you want to see the big rut in action, this is a little unfair because I'm sure it doesn't apply everywhere, but go to your local DMV. You know, it's yeah. just, uh, you know, follow the system. Don't smile. Don't talk to me. You know, you sit there for four hours and then we maybe give you your <laughs> driver's license. Um, organizations in the big rut, they have lost the ability to self-diagnose and they've become completely bureaucratic. Everything follows a standard pattern and there's no deviance. Challenge factor gets squeezed out. Anybody who's got the gall to question stuff gets squeezed out. And essentially, we're just sitting there on a long, slow decline to irrelevance. Why is it long and slow? It usually is. Sometimes it's precipitous, but usually it's long and slow. Why? Because we were in predictable success for a long time. You had a bunch yeah. load of money. We've got very big, very fat. We've got a big balance sheet. You make a lot of money in treadmill. You can become very successful. Um, we see it in the church world as well. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of places just sitting around, slowly sliding into decline. Not going to disappear tomorrow, but generationally, they're not going to be around in the long term. Yeah, and they and got money in the bank and they're sitting on real estate and they got 30 people left, 100%. And everybody's, and everybody's comfortable and they don't want any yeah. change and, and they yeah. fear that change. And so it becomes a self-filtering group of people and eventually you hit the final stage, which I call death rattle, in which it looks like something might be happening, but it's not. We're just putting this thing to bed. It's finally disappearing. We saw two good examples over the years, Kodak, going the whole way through that arc. Kodak in my childhood, they owned film, as they called it back then. They should have actually, in retrospect, owned imaging, but they owned the old mechanical ways of taking photographs. Kodak were, they owned it, they're dead now. Um, RIM, the BlackBerry manufacturer, another yeah. good example of an organization that's gone the whole way through. So that is one part of the model. The second part of the model then is what are the, what are the, um, underlying big things that make those changes happen, that move organizations through that. And you know what I discovered? It's the people who are running the organizations. Yeah. And um, in the second book, then I talk about the four styles, that the mix of which is essentially the key thing that dictates where you get to in that cycle. And it's the, the hardest thing in moving from one part of the predictable success life cycle to another is understanding the behavioral shifts that are needed. The mechanistic shifts are tough enough. You've got to put these systems and processes in place, and then you've got to dismantle them when you need to. But the thing that's really hardest for most folks is the four inches between their ears. It's, yeah. uh, you know, Marshall's Goldsmith is a book with a great title. What got you here won't get you there. And that's the constant challenge of organizational growth. The very things that were a success and were vital and necessary, for example, in fun, become a barrier to growth when you're trying to get to predictable success. And it's just a mental shift. Uh, no, I know a lot, of, a lot of people listening to this podcast, they would be visionaries and operators. So these are the people yep. who start things, who come alongside entrepreneurs, founders, transitioners, and I'm a visionary. I did your assessment. We'll link to all this in the show notes to the previous episodes, the previous work. Um, but if you're going to live in predictable success, you need to have a synergistic style where you have visionaries, operators, and, and processors. I want to get to scale, but can you give us the elevator pitch definition of a visionary, an operator, a processor, and then the synergist style? And then I want to jump right into scaling up because this is your latest work and your latest research that I want to dive into. And it's all integrated. Uh, I mean, it's all one model. It's like uh, it's like going to a Neil Young concert. It's all one song, you know. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the that material is very here true. Is, 
That's very uh, the, true. Uh, do scale is an integral. It's a sort of a more in-depth dive into the predictable success stage, but we'll talk about that in a second. And sure. So we've got these four styles and there's a, there's a choreography. There's a cadence with which they've got to arrive for all, uh, uh, optimal success. And it goes like this. Visionary is the first one uh, um, to start thinking about starting a new venture. It's such a risk-taking thing. You've got to be driven to do it. It's one of the reasons why, um, as an aside, um, in recessions, it's really unfortunate. A lot of people start businesses that, because of necessity, and they're not actually visionaries driven to do it. And then the the, the mortality rate jumps. Um, so visionaries are people who will willingly go do something that's got an 80% chance of failing, right? <laughs> because they're driven by this vision. Most visionaries uh, start things because of the need for freedom and autonomy. It's not for the monetary reward, though that comes pretty high up the list. It's the need to do things their own way. See that a lot in the church world. You know, church planting happens a lot by visionaries saying, I want to do this my way, except sometimes in the church world, we we, we bring God into that um, equation. And, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's equation. a very fine line, Wes. It's a very fine line. A little, you uh, know, we, we, might dance, we might dance across both sides of the line. But anyway, uh, yeah. visionaries are, are, are the folks that are driven to do something because of a need for freedom and autonomy. So they, they uh, get started, and very early on, the successful visionaries recognize, uh, this is great, but here's something I know about myself. I'm not great with the detail. I can do it if I have to, but it drives me crazy. I want to get on to the next big thing. I want to get to the 30,000 foot level. So they inherently, they intuitively go find people that I call operators. And operators, a visionary is essentially a starter. A visionary gets an endorphin rush by thinking about something. It's starting it is wonderful. An operator gets their endorphin rush by finishing stuff. That's what they want to do, is to do things. They get stuff done. Mm. Sometimes they don't say stuff. They get stuff <laughs> done. And visionaries and operators are a symbiotic link. They really work well together. They're a wonderful team. And so visionary with operators, that's how you grow the organization through fun. And at this stage, the visionary is playing the role of a conductor. It's essentially bringing in an operator to run this part of the organization, another operator to do the youth ministry, this operator be our admin person. Here's our marketing person. And we bring a bunch of operators and the visionary conducts the orchestra. And that's how we grow the organization during fun. And it's fantastic. And it's great fun. And I love it. I, you know, it's a, there's not, not a darn thing wrong with being there. However, the challenge comes when we hit whitewater because neither the visionary nor the operator get any endorphin rush by instilling, installing, and adhering to systems and processes. It drives them crazy. The visionary, because they want what? Freedom and autonomy and systems and processes curtail their freedom and autonomy. The operator loathes systems and processes for a different reason because they see them as getting in the way of getting stuff done. An operator, you ask them to fill in a spreadsheet, they'd rather open a paper clip and stab themselves in the eye. <laughs> it's just painful, painful for an out-and-out operator to do that. And so there is where the first battle comes in, is that we've got to go get people who are good at that. I call them, we call them processors in the model. They could be your you know, your accounting people, your legal people, your quality people, your warehousing people, whatever it is that you need to bring systems and processes in place, you bring these folks in and we have our first cultural clash of material scale because now we've got a conflict going on. And it's all about, do we over V this thing 
go back to fun or do we overpay this thing and head towards treadmill? And that's where if you want to get to predictable, the, the, the decision at this point is, oh, I can't be doing with this. Get rid of those folks. Let's go back to fun. And then we realize we grow again. We had white water. We need some processors. At some point, you recognize if we're going to get to predictable success and get the ability to scale, we need to integrate the processor role, embrace it, not just put up with right. it. And that's where the fourth role comes in. Because then a fourth learned style, the other three roles, visionary operator processor, all natural styles. We come out of the womb with some version of those. But there's a learned style. That style is the style I call the synergist style. And that synergist style is the recognition that these three roles are equally, equally important if we're going to scale. That it's not a question of the processor being a secondary citizen in service to the visionary and operators who, because of all the glory days they had, have got all sorts of status and authority in the organization. It's a recognition that the processor role is just as important. And without the synergist binding that team together, we'll just end up with this triangular three-way argument all of the time. And so those are those four roles are the roles that get us into predictable success and give us the ability to do what I talk about and do scale, which is the ability to scale. Well, and that that is so helpful. So for some listeners, this will be the first introduction to that material. I would encourage you, we'll link to it in the show notes, to go back to the previous episodes. Or the easy way to do it is just Google my name and Les's name and it'll come up. It's McEwen, but it's M small C capital K-E-O-W-N, correct? Uh, correct. You will find that. And I, I would say like that was a great overview, but there is so much more there. And uh, your books are worth purchasing on that too. And I would say just as a leader who's been in this almost a quarter century now in senior leadership, um, the appreciation for process was my yeah. toughest thing to do. Just right. to, because I would rather never have spreadsheets, never have the fine print. I don't, I don't want right. any of that stuff. And right. to realize, oh, there's the ceiling. If we don't have this, this is the ceiling. We'll never reach more people. Uh, we'll never be able to see what the potential of this is. And that was a, that was a slow learn. And I found your material so helpful. And now yeah. I want to I want to flip things to talk about scale because we've got business leaders, church leaders listening, who are thinking about new locations. And you know, in church world, it's there's a huge difference between three locations and five. That seems to be a tipping right. point between you know seven and twelve, between twelve and twenty, which is where some churches are getting to now. And there always seems to be that tipping point. Similarly, we've had entrepreneurs on this show. And, you know, they've, they're now in 17 states or right. they're getting to that scale thing. And I know there's a lot of young leaders listening who have dreams. And I want to drill down on scale. So you have a very precise definition of scale. And I want you to share it with us. So what do you mean by scale? Because I, I think of scale and my popular, like my little tiny, you know, brain says bigger. That's, but it's way right. more nuanced than that. Sure. And that's one of the, uh, key reasons I wrote the book is that um, what I recognized is that there's an enormous degree of confusion about what we mean when we talk about scaling. Some people just mean getting very big. Some yeah. people think it's getting very big, very fast. Some people think it's being bigger than what I currently am. And so I, um, I find myself over the years having discussions with people who are talking about scaling when really what they're talking about is just growing through fun. And scaling is a very different thing. 
Scaling, uh, and let me back up to the definition if I can. So let me talk a little bit about uh, what we're distinctly what we're talking about. Uh, growth, uh, the organic growth that we get in the early stages through fun uh, is what you can think of as, as an arc. It's a growing, it's the ability to grow, but it, the rate of growth is typically evening off as you get bigger through fun. The ability to get bigger and bigger gets harder and harder because of this need for systems and processes. You decide to just stay in fun, you actually put a cap on your growth. Nothing wrong with that. It's a decision I've made personally. There's no, you know, it's no, there's no ethical judgment, but it's a decision about what level of growth you can get to. I'm a single consultant. I'm not going to be Bain and Company. I'm not going to have offices all over the world. I've done that in the past. I know what that's like. I've chosen to stay in fun. So I've by, by nature put a cap on growth. If on the other hand, as I did do many times and as most of the people I work with want to do, you want to go through predictable success, through whitewater to get into predictable success. You come out with the ability to get onto a different curve, which is sometimes called a J curve. And right. it's the rate of growth that's actually increasing over time. The rate in which you're growing, uh, you're growing is getting faster and faster. So it's almost like hockey stick growth. Sometimes it's I've heard ha- that called. That's a phrase yeah. that's often used. Yeah. And that's a very specific thing. If you go back to the example that you talked about a moment ago, if you're running a fast-growing church and you're finding, and you're quite right, there's a stretch between three and up, and it's the same thing actually with retail outlets. You hmm. move between three to five. It's a big distinction, big difference. You're running a little mom-and-pop restaurant, you open your fourth outlet, it becomes a big deal. You're not, you don't have the ability to scale at that stage. If you're moving from 12 to 17 and it's still highly problematic and stretching you like crazy, you haven't yet got the ability to scale. Because the ability to scale says, we can grow, this is my definition in the book, we can grow to whatever size our industry or the market we serve will allow us. We can grow to whatever size our market or our industry that we serve will allow us. Doesn't mean you have to go to the biggest size, that's dominating, which is you know a subset of scaling, but you can. And a way to look at it is this, uh, whenever we're building our, our organization in fun, I want you to think about the industry or the market you serve as a massive skyscraper, 160 floors high. I think there's one in Dubai. In fun, during organic growth, the way we're getting up that building is running up the stairwell. That's essentially what it is, right? Yeah. You know, we just run up the stairwell. Yeah, what are we going to do this week? Let's go up to the fifth floor. We run up there. First few floors are always fun. <laughs> and the first few floors are going to charge and we're all running behind and the visionary leaders all up there. And then up a few steps. And I don't care how fit you are. And you start to get a little tired. So you flag wow. a little bit and you stop and you have an off year and things are quieter and you gather your resources and the money's got tight and, and then you... Big deep breath. Charles, let's go up another couple of stairs. The ability to scale is the ability to walk in, punch the floor in the elevator, and go there. No drain on your resources because you've got the process and systems to take you there. And the big problem is this, and it's what the book is all about, is that nobody hands us a building with the elevator. We've right. got to build the elevator, right? We've got to build the elevator. That's what the whole process and system, the whole um, transition and uh, transformation in Whitewater is all about. It's building an elevator that will allow us to scale. And behaviorally, we keep want 
wanting to run back out and go up a couple more fl- flights of stairs because there's immediate gratification, first of all. And secondly, it's what we did for many years. And just sticking to our last and saying, no, wait a minute, we just got to build this darn thing. And then this all becomes an awful lot easier. That's the that's the hardest part of that, trans- that transformation. Well, and I guess what you're saying, just to give some real world examples, and I'm, I'm just testing these, you can tell me if it's right or wrong, but it would be the difference between the regional coffee shop that has one outlet in Portland to all of a sudden, you know, we have five across the city, but it's the ability to really become Starbucks. That's what Starbucks did, right? It's like Correct. the market will bear in whatever countries. I've, I've met a couple times with the uh, senior leadership team of Chick-fil-A. And you look sure. at that story over the last 50 years, they went from Atlanta to the South to America. And I met with some of their team in Toronto recently. They're opening Toronto locations this summer and looking at uh, a globally expanding. But they had to build that skyscraper or life church in the church world, probably, you know, with over 30 locations now, you know, that's how they're reaching 100,000 people. On, on some weekends is they figured out, okay, now we have a replicatable system. And I've had uh, Jerry Hurley and Craig Rochelle and Bobby Grunwald on pre- previous episodes. We'll link in the show notes. And again, that's not for everybody, but there is like, I, I imagine there are a measurable number, like probably hundreds, if not thousands of listeners right now who are right between that first and the third coffee shop, the first and the third right. location, the third and the fifth, and they're getting tired climbing those stairs. Correct. And so it's time to put that elevator in place. But what you can do uh, you know, to flesh out the, the, the full paragraph of the definition, what I say is that um, uh, scaling is the ability to grow to whatever size your industry or market will allow in whatever footprint you choose to engage in. So you don't have to immediately. I mean, Chick-fil-A didn't suddenly become the third largest operator after Starbucks and McDonald's. They built up regionally, first of all. They built right. the elevator that they could operate in the, so think of a 20-story building. You build an elevator that takes you there. That's absolutely fine. And you can choose to stop at that point. You know, there are a number of great, you know, you go to Caribou Coffee, really, really great in a in particular region. They're not national, they're not global, but they've really got a great reputation regionally. So you can choose just to operate locally and you can stand fun typically locally. You can op- choose to go statewide and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just using geographical things here. We can yeah, make yeah, other sure. distinctions, but you can go statewide and then you're teetering on the brink. You can just probably serve a, a, a small state in fun. Once you want to go regional, you've you've made a decision. You've got to put an elevator in place. You've got to be able to scale into the region. Go from region to national. You can go from national to global. So you don't have to immediately decide we're going to be the next Chick-fil-A. But, you know, if you're going to grow outside of local and probably state, you need to put that elevator in place. Now, will you come back and retool that to take you further up? Almost certainly. But by that point, you've learned the principles. You understand what the behavioral shifts that are needed. It's much easier to go, for example, from regional to national or even national to global than making that first shift from fun into predictable success. In predictable success, you can do this two, three times, get bigger, bigger, bigger. It's that first shift because it's such a big change in mindset for the, particularly for the visionary and operators. And that's what I'm trying to do in DoScale. I'm trying to point out very clearly for those of you, DoScale is not for, you know, it's, it's going to yield most for people who aren't yet there and who for the first time really want to scale because it's showing you what the revelatory binary shifts are that you need to make if you're going to succeed in that. 
Well, I feel like I've listened to a million resources on scale because I'm pretty tuned into what's happening in the tech industry, Silicon Valley, listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books. And what's helpful to me less about the way you think about it is I just assume that growth and scale are two sides of the same thing. And you're saying, no, 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 no. And, and I think that's what's exhausting a lot of the leaders I meet is you know, they, they think, well, you know, look at how big we got. We have 50% growth, 30% growth, 20% growth, whatever, 100% growth. So we're scaling, but it's a, it's a different thing. It's a very different no, if, thing. If, if you're getting 20% growth, 30% growth, even 100% growth, and it's overwhelming you, then you're not scaling. You're growing. Right. But it's, <laughs> it's not scaling. Scaling is a controlled thing. And I, and I do want to make one uh, distinction. Again, one of the reasons I wrote the book is uh, I think we're being – terribly ill-served by people like me who commentate and write about uh, startups, growth, that whole area. What I'm talking about is sustainable scalability. There's a different, there's another thing, I call it flipping in the uh, book, um, which is um, flipping is essentially the unicorn stories we hear about all the time that make everybody massively envious, though they refuse to say so. And everybody wants to be the next Uber of everything, right? I don't, right. I don't think there's a single industry or market where I haven't heard somebody say, we're going to be the next Uber of this. You know what? Uber has never, ever made a penny. No. And as we record this, their stock is tanking right now. Their IPO yeah. just went out. And they actually, and I don't hold me 100% to this, but I'm, I'm 99% sure that they actually said in their transaction document and filing for the IPO that they have no plans to ever make a profit. That's artificial growth. That's buying the market. That's buying the market. You can only do that for so long. I'm talking about building a legacy, building sustainable growth, building something that you can be proud of, building something that's going to be there when you disappear, something that you know isn't just buying some artificial growth. I'm talking about doing something that builds on the, the organic growth of the early stages of your organization, and you can be proud of doing. Yeah, and, and not exhaust your team. I think I, I run into so many leaders who are scaling, growing, starting, transitioning. And that's for all of you who are turning churches around or organizations, businesses around. And they're just, man, I'm just dead. I'm so tired. The team's burning out. We're losing staff, high turnover. Uh, I want to go there. What are some reasons companies either don't scale or they end up scaling really poorly less? Well, I think you've hit on it. I, the last section, uh, well, let me just back up and then come to the yeah. direct answer to your question. Um, the book's really in three parts. I talk about the the mechanics, first of all. That's, you know, that's the easiest part is, you know, what me- mechanically, how do we make this happen? Then I talk about the mindset and we've been dipping in and out of that. Um, but at the end, I talk about um, building, what I call building scalable people, which sounds a bit like Lego bricks, but um, what I see over and over again in organizations is um, a lack of understanding on the part of the leaders as to what they need from their people for the organization to be scalable. A lot of leaders I see, particularly visionary leaders, operators are the same thing. I think if they just shout harder, run faster, you know, do more, that, that will scale. That scale is somehow an arithmetic formula. If I just do more of this, we'll get there. And there's actually a complete shift that needs to happen. And at its, at, 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 you know, the bit of the iceberg above the sur- surface level, um, it's recognizing that you as the visionary leader in particular, no possibly 
least of all, what's really happening in major parts of your organization if it's truly scaling. And so we got to build people who are capable of doing one thing. And I'm about to tell you the most soporific thing ever. This this puts me to sleep and I teach it day in, day out. (laughs) At the core of organizations that scale well, there is a muscle that does this. It produces high-quality, team-based decisions. And that's the beating heart of scalability. Is And I can tell it. I can see it within, give me an hour in any organization. I'll tell you whether they, they're going to successfully scale or not. Because at the heart of organizations that are going to successfully scale, not sitting around where the person who's at the top end of the org chart is, but in every part of the organization, there are groups and teams making and executing high quality decisions. That is so challenging for me as a natural visionary. <laughs> when I hear you talk about this, it's so convicting. Um, but I would love I would love for you to unpack that a little bit. So if you look at an organization that is not doing high-quality team-based decision-making, and you're standing uh, behind the glass door looking in at the boardroom, what does it look like compared to a company that is doing high-quality team-based decision-making? Because this is fascinating Uh, to me. Well, here's the easiest way to think about it. I want you to think about the, um, let's call it the senior leadership team in fun. It may not have even got that phrase but in fun until later on, it might just be called management or them or the founders right. or the bosses. <laughs> Typically towards middle, certainly by late fun, something will have evolved where we talk about it. And every organization has got a different phrase for it. But there is something that is the senior leadership. Leadership team, team executive what, team, management team, whatever you whatever call it. it. Be. Yeah. Um, we've got a, 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 a generic phrase that we, we call it T1 big letter T1 and oh. predictable success because everybody else has got different words for it. Um, T1 in fun, here's what it is. It's the visionary and a bunch of enablers. Mm-hmm. It's not a leadership team. It's not a leadership team. They're not leading the organization. Now, I don't mean that in any way critically. I don't mean that. I'm not saying anybody was playing a con game when they used those, the mm-hmm. phrase or whatever. It's just that that seems to be the right thing to call them. So let's call them that. It's typically the visionary with a bunch of enablers. They may be very powerful enablers. They may be really good enablers. And I don't mean enabling in the addiction sense. What, right, they're right. there. They're there with a positive intent, which is, boss, whatever you need, just let us know, we'll, we'll make it happen. And so how do, we, how do we select managers in organic growth during fun? And what are we looking for? We're looking for their ability to manage vertically, vertical management. I will make you a manager because I need you to take away from me the need for me to talk to those six people because there's too much to do. So you manage that and, you know, enable me to achieve our vision. So if you think about it, I'm I'm, uh, steepling my hands here for those of you who are listening in black and white. Um, Think about it. That's what the management team looks like. There's the person here. Sometimes it's two people, very occasionally three, usually it's one person and a group of folks who are essentially enablers. You walk into an organization, so if you look through the, the conference door, as I say, they're in a class conference room, you'll tell, you'll know 
by body language. You know, by, that guy's by, the visionary. That guy's by the, the way everybody's looking at whoever it is, guy or girl, you know, by where the last word is. If you open the door when they're coming to the point where they're actually making a decision, you know who's talking last. You know who's summarizing. You know who's saying, okay, let's do this. So it's very much this. You get into an organization that's able to scale. The managers have learned a skill that didn't exist and wasn't necessary before, and it's called lateral management. And that's the ability not just to manage your people vertically, but to work laterally with the people who are with you on T1 to make what? High-quality team-based decisions that you actually are now a leadership team. That team is making decisions. And And the... visionary CEO or whoever it is that's the most senior executive, sure, they're the most senior executive. Sure, they got some things that are reserved solely to them. But if you watch that team through the, that conference window, you should not be able to see most of the time who the most senior, the MSE, most senior executive, again, every phrase has got, every organization has got a different phrase, who they are in their interactions. In fact, that person should be there less and less and less because they're not writing herd on everybody. There are groups of people making high-quality team-based decisions throughout the organization. The MSE is doing what only they can do. It's, and that's one of the you know one of the phrases that I use with the executives that I coach who are serious about scaling. I say, this is what your mantra needs to be. You need to be only doing what only you can do. You get that? You need to be only doing what only you can do. Now, let's let's start by defining that because you've got a whole mindset that says that only you can do a whole bunch of stuff, which is once the case is no longer the case. Or if it is the case, it shouldn't be. It means you haven't hired people who are competent enough. It means you haven't delegated out to people enough. So that's where the challenge is, is breaking this down to this and building this ability of lateral management where senior teams really, really are teams making high quality decisions. Oh, that's so good. And it's so convicting in that picture of looking into the boardroom. I can see different teams I've seen. And you're right. right. In the organizations that are really capable of scale, it's hard to, it's, is that the CEO? Is that the lead pastor? Is that the chairman? Is that like, it's right. really hard to know. Whereas, right. you know, in a, in a younger organization or one that isn't going to scale or a less mature organization, the visionary is usually driving everything. It's, it's fascinating. Um, right. What are some keys to enabling um, high value team based decision making? What what are so because a lot of visionaries are hearing this going uh oh uh oh uh oh um, so what what are some keys for them? So we've talked already about the need to build this um, muscle of lateral management. It means getting uh, it, it it means getting to the point where you know that a group of people in a room know how to make decisions. You know, the biggest low-hanging fruit that I have when I go in and start working with an organization is we put a decision-making process in place. We just simply agree how to make decisions. You know, I <laughs> sit down with a, with a group, you know, it's the T1 group, and the first question I ask is, how do you actually make decisions? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, well, tell me something you've got to make a decision about. So they'll tell me something. We're thinking of making a, opening a second shift of our extrusion plan. How are you going to make that decision? Oh, we'll have a meeting. Right. And what will happen? And everybody sort of looks at each other. And usually some version comes out of, well, you know, Joanna, 
we'll decide. Jonah's the most senior executive. She's the CEO yeah. or the senior pastor or whatever. Well, hi. How does she decide? <laughs> I am This is awesome. Not too sure. Yeah. So, well, how, how, so how about we just put some... I mean, I'm going to come back to this thought in a minute. Here's why this is important. If you're going to scale, you know the one thing you're going to be doing gazillions of times and you've got to do it gazillions of times? Make and execute good decisions. And yet we leave this whole thing so vague and unthought through. So what I'll say is, okay, the, the rule at the moment is Joanna decides, right? Let's codify that and stack hands on it. Let's accede and accept to that. You know what one of the first things is that begins to happen is begin to think, maybe that's not very effective. Hmm. What if Joanna didn't decide anything? And it's often, it's mostly usually Joanna, who I've just made our token most senior executive here, who is the first to say this. Hey, what about I don't have anything to do with a spend that's under 25,000 or 5,000 or whatever? What if I, if I don't have anything to do with these hirings of the, these this role or this role? And they be, what you begin to do is you begin to push decision-making out because we've just named it for what it is, which is at the moment, everything comes in here, right? right. Essentially, the, the T1, that senior most senior group, as we're just beginning to make the transition into scalability, you know what it is? It's the mail room. Hmm. They think they're the senior leadership team. You know what they are? They're the mailroom. And people are walking by and throwing stuff in there. And sort that out. Fix that out. There's no mandate. There's no agreement about what it is that they have got responsibility to decide on and what needs to go out. So we say, how do you, how do you make decisions? Okay, the, um, under these circumstances, Joanna, what do we get? Here's a couple of examples. What about if the team made that decision together? Because right. the team now know a lot. Okay, yeah, let's do that. The team will do that. How are we going to do that? Uh, I don't know. We just talk until somebody goes, well, what about if we have a vote? What? What? What about if we have a vote? Yeah, let's try that. Okay, do we need unanimity? Do you want everybody to? You see where I'm going here? Yeah, yeah, 100%. um, What about timing? What about when you're having this? What about what data that you need available? Do you know that in my experience, 80% of every discussion a senior leadership team starts more than two-thirds of the people around the table know within two minutes they're not going to make an effective decision because there isn't there, there isn't the right amount of data. But we don't have um, challenge words. We don't have the vocabulary to say, we should not continue with this. It's a waste of time. And, and you know what? You walk into most organizations that are struggling to get to fun, sorry, to get to predictable success, struggling to scale. Yeah. If you ask them, does it feel like you talked about this before? Oh, yeah. Don't you think you made a decision about this sometime in the last three months? Yeah, we did. What was it? Why did it not happen? <laughs> so just codifying all that. So we have a simple process. I call it the 4D process. Data, debate, decide or defer. Get the data, debate it, decide or defer it. And we build an infrastructure around it. And there's a simple one pager. And that one pager, I'm not saying it, it, it's it's the holy grail and every organization should right. use it. But in, the, in a vacuum, in the absence of that... I give them this 4D flight plan. And what it basically says is every non-trivial decision you're going to make, you just run this process. It revolutionizes their meetings, revolutionizes the decision-making that they're, that they're going through. So Les, I know you've got something for listeners at the end of this podcast, if they listen all the way through, a free chapter of your book. But uh, I think you're willing to include the 4Ds, just a, a basic guide to that. Is that right? Sure. 
Absolutely. So um, we'll show, we'll tell folks at the end of the podcast how to get the first chapter PDF of Do cool, Scale. Cool. And once they get that, then uh, we'll follow up and send them out uh, the 40 flight plan. That's amazing. Um, speaking delight. of flight plan, I want to come to that in a moment, uh, navigating by instruments, not by sight. But I coach a lot of leaders who are stuck. In church world, I think it's the 800 to 1,000 barrier in attendance. And in entrepreneur world, I keep bumping into it at about the million dollar revenue mark where they just seem to be like, I think 96% of all businesses never grow past a million dollars and something like 96% of all, 98% of all churches never grow past a thousand people, even when they have the potential to do that. Now, some people don't want to grow. They want to keep it mom and pop. They want to keep a small church. I get that. But I'm talking to the leaders who are like, no, actually we want to reach more people. Uh, I had an incident where I was speaking somewhere and this guy had said to me, I knew this guy and he's just like, yeah, I just don't know why we can't break a thousand, seven hundred. And I'm giving a talk and literally 20 minutes before my talk, he's running my keynote, my slides. Uh, They're they're setting them up and I look and in the booth is a lead pastor setting everything up in pro presenter. And I'm like, I know exactly why your church isn't past a thousand now. <laughs> I know I know exactly why. And and the language that we use around here, and I'll I'll call an audible on my team regularly, you know, even as we've seen kind of explosive growth on the podcast, the blog, all this stuff that I do, is like I got too many decisions crossing my desk. I need to release and empower. And we're hitting those walls all the time. I don't need to be included in. Can you talk about that tension like how do you know whether too many things are coming back to you? Because it sounds like when you're talking about high quality team-based decision-making, that's not Joanna. It's not the, the CEO, the senior leader who, who is making all those decisions anymore. How do you know if you're that person and too much is crossing your desk? Well, the example that you gave of the lead pastor setting everything up and pro presenter, you know, I just go back to that mantra that I mentioned earlier, that if you're serious about scaling and you're asking yourself, am I only doing what only I can do? That just is so far out there that you probably got uh, uh, with uh, there there are individuals, um, you know, we've talked about visionary operator processor synergist and and those styles um, can come in what I call a dominant version, which means if you can be a visionary, which is great, we need visionaries. But if you if you've got too much of the visionary, you know, Jones in you, you actually become an arsonist. <laughs> it's not helpful. It's just not helpful. Um, operators that we need operators, but if you've too much of the operator in you, you actually become a maverick. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not coming to your stupid meeting. I'm not reading your dumb emails. Leave me alone. I've got a job to do. Um, processors, we need processors, but if you're too processory, you become a bureaucrat. We don't need bureaucrats. And even our synergists, if they're too synergy, they become people pleasers. Right? Mm. They lose sight of the goals that we're trying to achieve and we'll avoid conflict at all costs. Now, if, what I often find is that if your style is dominant, you need coaching. You need coaching. You can't do this yourself because your antenna are not seeing it. You're not picking up your radar. That lead right. pastor, you could probably tell him a hundred times and he's not seeing it. So let's let's go back practically to, to the answer to your question of, uh, in terms of setting uh, boundaries. The first thing, if you're serious about scaling that you've got to do is actually formulate what that T1 is. Call it whatever you want, executive mm. team, senior leadership team, whatever it's going to be. You've got to sit down and think through who 
is that, and I don't mean who in terms of their names, we got a, we, one of the shifts that happens in moving from organic growth to scaling is we move typically from what I call from heads to hats. An organization and fun organic growth, it's all the heads. What's Jimmy doing today? Hey, Julie's the answer to that. Um, send for Andy, right? And of course, that's great and it's fun and that's never going to change. And we're humans and we love the human nature of this. If you're scaling, though, your head has got to be in. What does the CMO think about this? Right. What's our CIO doing here? Now, you might not use those titles. Maybe it's just, you know, where's the, you know, what's the IT role in this? So you've got to move to the hats and you've got to sit down and say, in a T1 for me, if we're going to scale this organization, what are the hats that need to be around the table? Maybe there's a perfect fit between the heads and the hats. And, you know, hopefully most of those cases, some cases there won't be. That's one of the conflict things that, that scaling brings up, which is a recognition. This person won't get us there. Yeah. Julie's wonderful, but she'll never be a CMO. Never. And we're crazy to expect that over and it's not fair. Some of those hats roles may be roles that we don't even have yet. And we'll have to think about bringing right. them in over time. But you've got to define what they are. And here's a dirty little secret. I'm going to tell you the single thing that makes the biggest difference is that often in organizations that have recently been in fun, there's a secret shadow T1 inside what we call T1. Uh. Sometimes it's co-founders who, no matter how hard we try to do this, they get in the car and go home to, together at night and they go out to the gym together. They're, sometimes it's a mom and pop business or a family business where there's a secret T1 that meets at Sunday at lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something about churches that they, that, that they often struggle with. We've got our visionary lead pastor. We've got our enablers. We decide we want to move to scale. We build a T1. We start building good leaders. And guess what happens every Monday at lunchtime? Pastor and the spouse get together, chew the fat, and pastor comes back with a rethought through answer to a solution or unpicks an answer. That means the T1 is actually the two people that meet on Monday at lunch. You know what? Fine. Recognize it. Name it. <laughs> uh, it it's easier for me to say this in the in a commercial context. But when I can get two co-founders to say, no, no, don't, don't do that disservice to your senior leaders. Call them T2. Right. They're right. T2, right? T1 are the co-founders. T2, it's one of the reasons why not having phrases like senior leadership team or management team, it's easier to see this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's what happens in 90% of the occasions is that becomes a barrier because that T1's too small. And you start to recognize, okay, we're going to have to shift this. And, I'll, and, and I'll, let me get to, the, to the, the money shot in all of this. You know you're making serious headroads in building your ability to scale when your T1 starts organically without being told to build a T2. That's when I know an organization is moving from organic growth into scalability. That T1 is so humming, it's working so well that it's beginning to realize we need, I want you to think about this as a donut. Okay. Uh, the, just not to get too complicated, the T in T1, T2, T3 stands for Taurus. 
T-O-R-U-S. A torus is a donut shape. It's just Latin for okay. torus. I realized I couldn't charge much money if I started talking about donut level one and donut level two. <laughs> so I just, I use T1, T1. T1 becomes the senior leadership group. Right. You really are beginning to make some momentum when that T1 begins to realize we need people to do things here. As so it's T2. concentric circles. Yes, it's it much, much, um, we're getting into a huge area here, but it's much easier and more intuitive to to think about scaling your organization if in, as well as thinking about the command and control org chart, which has got its use, you know, the boxes, that's all fine. Yeah. If you think about it as concentric circles, it begins to become much more obvious that we've got this inner group Okay, it can't be the co-founders anymore, just the co-founders anymore. It can't just be pastor and spouse. It's got to be a real T1. They work together for a few years. Uh, that's usually how long it takes, somewhere between yeah. 12 and 24 months. At that point, while that's happening, just about everybody in T1 is pulling double duty as being T2, right? So you've got an organization and there's somebody in T1 and they're, let's say, chief marketing officer. But they also happen to be the people who are running the LinkedIn account, who are, mm -hmm. you know, making the Instagram account work. They're also the T2. They're the manager, but they're also the person making it happen. When you're really beginning to get your skilling going, then T2 begins to take shape. You begin to realize, okay, we need to start putting people in place to do that. So one of the things that allows it to happen is to let the T1 people just think from a T1 perspective. Right. And then you've got a marketing team that makes its own decisions and the big directional strategic decisions move to T1 and the right. execution and the, you know, sub 50,000 or sub 5,000 decisions, right. they move to T2. Is that right? Correct. That is absolutely correct. And here's why that's so important. Because when you think about it before T2 has been developed to the point and we've got to the size and shape where we can begin to appoint people because there's a financial, obviously, overhead cost in that. Before that, we've got people at T1 just learning to move away from this, um, that level of uh, uh, the fun uh, leadership stage when they were just empowering the, the key leader. They're moving towards becoming a group of people making decisions on their own. But they're all walking into those meetings with a T1 and a T2 hat and maybe some of them a T3 hat. And guess what happens as a result? T1, the strategic, big, important stuff, and then T2, the urgent, this customer's shouting, we've got right. two meetings to have, and so on. Which of them dominates? The urgent always beats out the important. And so the T1 in the early days find it really hard to get traction as a senior decision-making body because every time we get in a room together, we got this cruddy T2 stuff that's Fighting screaming fires. at us, yeah. right? It's firefighting. And so we never build a senior leadership muscle because we can't get to it because the urgent always outweighs the important. And we end up having to go off on a strategic retreat or do something you know, that's sort of slightly false or separate. And we come up with some great ideas and we bring them back to the ranch and then all the T2, T3 needs hit us and we never get to implement. So it's, it's a little bit of a you know, cause and effect thing there um, because you, you, know, you don't have the resources. Just go build a T2 immediately, right? You've got to build and grow to be mm. able to afford this. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got to acknowledge the fact that what that's going to do is it's going to mean that your horizons of focus on this high-quality team-based decision-making is always going to be being pulled down to the operational level. 
No, that is so good. That's so rich. And I, I just want to say one more thing about sort of the secret T1 or the unspoken T1, because I think that's a very big issue where even if you met with who you think your senior leadership team is, and then you undo the decision when they're not in the room, that can happen at right. the board level, that can happen at the staff level. Um, sure. I would imagine that would make it really difficult to cultivate high capacity leaders at a senior level of your organization. Is it true that that top leaders don't like to stick around when they're told, hey, you're in charge of all operations or you're in charge of all marketing, but really you're not going to make any decisions. Like that seems to be a very right. disempowering environment, is it? It's very much so. Uh, you know, you think about it in the fun stage where the senior folks are essentially enablers, as we talked about before. Um, that all just comes with the territory. Oh, jo- you know, Joanna meets with her husband, who happens, also happens to be, you know, one of the founders and an investor. And we all know that every decision is provisional until Harry and Joanna have spoken. I mean, to, right. to give that as an example. Everybody just knows it comes with the territory. It's fine. But as you start to scale... And you say, oh, sure, I really need a high-quality CMO in here. I need a good, you know, a, just a world-class music pastor in here, whatever it is. And you get those people, either you develop them internally or you attract them in there. And they see that they don't have any real autonomy. They've got expressed autonomy, but which can be whipped back at any time when, you know, a couple of people go talk, uh, that they're not going to hang around. They're, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they'll either just give up on their discretionary effort level and stop trying to make good, high-quality decisions, because why would I if, at the end of the day, I just got to wait and see what you say, um, or they move on and go elsewhere. In a commercial organization, they typically will just, you'll just up and go. That's, you know, that, that, that's not going to um, keep them hanging around. What I see a lot in cause faith-based organizations is people just quietly withdraw their discretionary effort. And <laughs> that's so well said. That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. You will never have seen that, Carrie. You will have never yeah. seen that, but I've no, seen I've that never seen that. But they quietly <laughs> say that again. They quietly they withdraw quietly their withdraw discretionary, their discretionary effort. The the stuff that makes you who you are makes you different. Makes you succeed. All of it. Except you luck into something for a short period of time, like you know, you make a technological breakthrough. Over the long term, everything that makes you succeed comes from the discretionary effort of your people. It's true of staff. It's true of non-staff. It's true of volunteers. It's like, I'm just going to show up. I'll give you my 40 hours, my 37.5, my 45, whatever you want from me. But you're not getting more than that. Oh, that's so well said. And that's a, that's a disempowering environment. I want to talk a little bit less before we wrap up about um, flying by gut and flying by instruments. So uh, I heard this in a scale talk once and you and I've chatted about this before, but uh, one of the big changes for me, because I think a lot of leaders who listen to this, we're very heavily entrepreneurial, a lot of our, our leaders listening, and you just kind of have a gut. It's like, whoa, something's off or this isn't right. And pilots, you know, you learn to fly by sight and so you got to right. go up on a sunny day, that kind of thing. But you you have to get your instrument rating. And you've got right. to learn to fly by instrument. And I remember there was a flight recently. Uh, I fly all the time. But there was a flight recently where I was sitting by a window looking out going, well, I hope this guy did well in that class because I know we're about 100 <laughs> feet off the ground and we're at the minimum level that you can actually land a plane. But I hope we show up somewhere on the runway. And leadership is like that, where you eventually, at a certain size, lose the ability to read accurately. 
what's happening and it comes down to dashboards and metrics and uh, lead and lag indicators and all that. Can you talk about that as a key to scale? Because that's another transition I've had to make and it's not an easy one always. Yeah, and it's one of the key um, elements in that what got you here won't get you there equation, which is that an absolutely essential part of early growth is having a visionary with great judgment. And, you know, what, what I call in the book a golden gut that, you know, they, they, they just sniff it. Uh, now, I actually break down in the book. We don't have time to go into uh, uh, today. But I break that intuition, that golden gut, uh, that visceral management style, visceral leadership style into five specific uh, things that contribute to it. And what happens as the organization becomes complex is that three of those five begin to get overwhelmed. And the most obvious one is just the availability of the relevant information. When you, you know, uh, had four people working with or for you, you could see everything, you know, you just had to look around. Even if you're running a virtual business, you know, if you're using Slack or Flow or Asana or whatever, it's all there. I mean, everything is there. And you've got to make a decision. Yes, you're you're using your intuition and your judgment, which are the two things that, that you continue to have no matter what. But as the, as the organization becomes more complex, you don't have all of the available information, but nobody tells us that and we don't admit it to ourselves until, you know, we make some decision that just falls flat. And I like to say that uh, in fun, you know, a board meetings are right up in the elevator. You get in, you yeah. hit the button, you cut out the 11th floor, you've decided to, you know, open an office in Chicago. And, you know, by Tuesday of the next week, you're looking at offices because you've met some guy and he's going to do a great job. You know, all of that stuff, that all that visceral stuff, that works. Not only works, it's vital. But then we have this transition point at which the stuff that's important is moving. It initially gets into your peripheral vision and then it goes behind your peripheral vision. And at that time, you, you are, you've you got to be flying by instruments. So you've got to have decided what's the information that I need, how am I getting it, and how do I know that I can trust it? And that's part of what we talk about in Do, do Scale is how do you put that in place? There may, I know it's different for every industry, for every sector, you know, profit, not for profit, et cetera. But there are, are there certain metrics that just should be on every leader's uh, radar that you're like, hey, across all these industries, and you've run 42, 43 businesses. So, you know, you've, you've had some sampling in that, that it's like, obviously, P&L, you got you to pay attention to that. Uh, you're tracking growth, but what are what are some that just like hey, if you're not if you don't know this, this tells you more than you think it would. Uh, I would say the the one that stands the test more than anything else because all industry, you know, a million bucks a year in one industry is very different than you know fifty million in another industry and so forth. Um, the, the easiest way to uh, get a sense of this are the number of FTEs, the number of full-time employees that you're working with. Um, up to about 20, no matter what industry, sector you're in, 20 people, and I'm counting everybody, um, mm. you can probably be confident that you'll get most things right. It starts to really come under pressure at 20, and by the time you're at 75, it's shot. I've never seen a leader with more than 75 people who didn't need to start using instrument navigation. Now, it doesn't mean to say that it instantly becomes, we shift from one to the other. It becomes, you know, let's do both. 
let's track both of these. And then what really good leaders be, uh, begin to do is they begin to say, I'm not going to even think about what I think about these things anymore. We're going to go by what the data tells us. I'm going to restrict my golden gut intervention to this these areas because these are areas that I still know I've got some ability of judgment that we need as an organization. But most leaders, particularly visionaries, think that that's much, that footprint is much bigger than it actually is. They think that they need to continue to be involved in things like setting up Presenter Pro that they absolutely shouldn't, you know? Right. No, 100%. I hear what you're saying. And I think it's a question of doing less and less and less, which a lot of leaders feel guilty of, right? If you guilty and also feel threatened and nervous, if you know it, it, a lot, a lot of uh, the leaders I work with, when I say you know only do what only you can do, I look at them and say, I can tell what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, well, I do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. doesn't does not mean I'm only going to you know uh, do one thing a day. I say, no, you're going to do all of that so much better. And let's think, for example of one of the things that only you can do. Only you can build succession in this organization, right? Yeah. Only you yeah. can do that. So, But you're never going to do it the way things are at the moment because you're too busy running like crazy. So mm -hmm. one of the things you're going to get to do is you're going to get to, if you start delegating properly, you start defining what it is that you're doing, get yourself a high-quality T1, guess what you're going to have time to do? You're going to have time to mentor people. Mm -hmm. You're going to have time to coach people. You're going to have time to drive the uh, vision of the organization deep into the organization. Well, you know, the number one goal, this isn't necessarily uh, only for do scales for any organization and predictable success, whether they want to just grow or scale. The number one goal a visionary leader has is to institutionalize the vision, institutionalize mm. the vision, depersonify it. Think of Apple. Think of yeah. what happening now. Think of Starbucks, Schultz is gone. Think of Dell, where Michael Dell has had to go back four times. <laughs> You've got to institutionalize the vision. And you cannot do that if you're making every every operational decision. Uh, that's so good. And I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast and on my blog too, but succession is a massive crisis that's brewing in the church. And it's also, I mean, very personally, my parents ran a business and I was their succession plan. And they did all right. But after 20 years, they kind of wound it up and, you know, they did all right and all their employees got other jobs. But yeah, that that's a really big thing. And so for me to see our church firmly in the hands of the next generation, uh, 20 years after I started it, uh, has been amazing to see. But that's really hard work. I don't think the church is doing it particularly well. And most businesses, most businesses are first generation businesses. Uh, do, do you know like how many businesses actually make it to successful succession? I think in the church, it's not, not very good. Uh, it's, it, it, the percentage has got to be below 20. I don't know what, it, I wouldn't be able to tell yeah, you what yeah. it is. But, but it's not, it's not, it's not automatic, right, Les? I, I think I, is what I, I was driving at. It's far from automatic, far, far from, it's, it's fact, it's the opposite. It's rare for a successful transition to happen in any environment, church, cause-based, faith-based, commercial. Um, I, I, here, I, 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 just to, to say a painful truth, truth, I've seen it over and over again. Senior pastors, particularly if they were the founding pastor, find it, very hard to let go. They yep. just can't let go. And it's for great reasons. Their heart is good. But we've got, we've got to coach 
founding pastors into understanding that succession means handing over the vision, not maintaining some sort of super vote, super veto, not hovering around like Banquo's ghost. You know, part of the problem is you get a senior pastor who's led a church, particularly if they founded it and done so for some decades. Everybody loves him, loves yep. her. Everybody loves Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike probably has got a, I hate to say it, a reasonable amount of his identity tied up in that. And it's That's hard to let go. It's hard to let go. And I understand that. I understand it. What I fear, um, I'd say one other thing about uh, succession in the church. It's too often presumed, particularly in fast-growing evangelical churches, to be also a family matter. I have to mm. say that. Yep. I have to say that. Yeah. Uh, often it is, and rightly so, but sometimes it isn't and shouldn't be. And there are a lot of great church leaders there who are who are going to uh, either dissatisfied or going to leave because what's happening is what would in an organizational sense, in a commercial organization, be just the lucky seed club. You know, you happen to be the son of the founder of this plastic extrusion business, so you get, to, of course, you get to get to you be get the to new run CEO. It. Of yeah. course, you do. Fine. That's all right. But that happens in churches too, Kerry, unfortunately. So one of the best pieces of advice that I got from a mentor, and this happened maybe seven or eight years ago, but he asked me, he said, Kerry, he says, are you in Conexus, my church that I started, are you so entangled that you can't, like your whole identity is wrapped up in that? Or can you extrude yourself from that? Do you have a life independent of your church? And it was a really challenging question. And I kind of said, Yes, but I'm so glad. Dave McDaniel, thank you so much for that question. Because, you know, now seven years later, the church firmly has its own life that's independent of my existence. And I have one that's independent. I still love our church. I go there every Sunday. I'm in town, but and preach there a lot too. But uh, we are not one and the same. And I'm working on that with this podcast, working on it with the blog, working on it with this little communication thing that I've started. But that's a that's a very tough journey, a very emotional journey, but I think it's one worth pursuing for sure. Les, uh, I want to get to the special you've got. You've got an offer, uh, some free stuff for our uh, listeners. And then I'd also love, is there anything else you want to share about scale before we're done? And then tell us about the book and tell us about the free offer. Um, uh, just in terms of sharing about scale, I just want to, I, I want to underline what you just said. That, that, um, sort of cathartic choice is at the core of really understanding whether you're serious about wanting to scale. Yeah. Uh, and what I would say is there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I am this business. I am this church. It is me. We are the same. And I, that's how I want it to be and admitting it. And then you stay in fun and you do that with integrity. What doesn't work is to do everything to try to get the organization to scale, but to retain the mindset and the behaviors that say, I am this entity and this entity is me, because the two don't jib. And even if you manage to somehow be successful in, some, in achieving some degree mm -hmm. of scale with that, it disappears when you leave. Yes, because you've got so much of that of that success baked into you. You haven't institutionalized the vision as we talk about. Oh, that's so good, Les. Uh, you know, I, I, one way I guess to think of it, 
and I'm increasingly thinking of it, is if you don't separate the two identities, then when you're done, it's done. Whatever that is, whether that's your company, whether that's the church you started, whether that's the legacy you're leaving. You know, a lot of people talk about their legacy. I don't think I have a legacy, but like, you know, it's an, well, then your, your legacy's done. Like, it's just great. You left something weak and whatever for the next generation. And I think with the church, number one, you're not supposed to do that. And number two, what are you actually building? Like, if you're building a company, if you're building a not for profit, are you building something that you hope will outlive you and will impact more people than you are capable of impacting? Then you got to scale it and you've got to disentangle your identity from what you're doing. This is good. This is a little bit, this is free therapy, guys. All free therapy today uh, here on the podcast. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the book and then the offer. So Do Scale, um, uh, which is my fourth book, it comes out on June 4th and I'd be delighted uh, for all of the listeners uh, to send them a free PDF of chapter one, the whole of awesome. the first chapter. Uh, so all they have to do is text the word do, D-O, just text the word do to 7200, 7200, or do to 0 and you'll get the free PDF. And then I'll make sure based on our conversation today that everybody that gets the um, PDF will follow up and make sure you get the 4D flight plan as well. Oh, that's extremely generous because I know normally you do not give that away. That is something you do when you personally consult with people. So that's extremely generous. So make sure you guys check that out. Also, tell us a little bit about ScaleCon. This is something you're doing for the first time, right? It is. ScaleCon's my first annual conference. I do a lot of public workshops. Um, do, you know, I, I do private consulting and coaching, of course. Uh, but this is the first time I'm bringing a group of people together. And all we're doing is looking at the key principles in Do Scale. So that's on uh, June 5th to the 7th here in Washington, D.C. We start with a little reception on the evening of the 5th and uh, teaching all day Thursday and Friday morning. Got some great speakers, um, people that I respect who have really helped me on my journey. We're talking about uh, the whole uh, 360 degree approach uh, to scaling not only what does it mean inside your organization, which I'm handling mostly, and I'm releasing a fantastic new product called Your Scalability Index. Don't have time to go into that today, but uh, everybody who comes to ScaleCon gets a year's access to that free. And then I've got a couple of uh, great guest speakers who are going to come and talk about other aspects of uh, of scaling. I've uh, got Rita McGrath, wonderful professor from Columbia University who writes incredible stuff. She's going to talk about seeing around corners, seeing around the future. Oh, wow. We've got somebody you know, uh, a chap called Jeff Brody, who was at the other end of the equation whenever you yeah, were confronted with whether, is. you know, where your involvement was. So for those of you, I'm sure just about everybody on the podcast knows, but Jeff actually runs yeah. uh, Connexus Church. Uh, and then uh, uh, we've got Jen Jarasimus, who's a master trainer. Uh, she's my chief wellness officer, and wow. uh, she's going to share what the whole physical and mental mindset is if you're going to be at your best as a leader and lead your own team. Uh, so really looking forward to it. Everything is at scalecon2019.com, just scalecon2019.com. Well, I feel like you have become, for me in my life, like a, a leadership insanity IV drip. So whatever whatever <laughs> you put out, I, uh, I just want that refilled because it's been so helpful, so clarifying. Literally, the seven stages of predictable success, the uh, visionary operator, processor, synergist, and now your new teaching, your new material on scale. I know has become part of the leadership fabric for me, unless you're a gift to just so many people. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast. I'm so grateful for you, Les. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it.
Man, Les is so generous, isn't he? I mean, that was really, really nice. That stuff that he usually keeps behind the paywall, you can get it for free. So make sure you send that text. All the links, everything we talked about, including the links to his previous appearances on this podcast are available in the show notes today. So you can find that at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 265. Hey, don't forget Church Growth Masterclass is closing tomorrow at this pricing. So if you want to position your church for growth, head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com and make sure you check out Pro Media Fire as well. Uh, media, video, all that stuff, graphic design, that is the game online these days. And you can go to promediafire.com forward slash carry and get 10% off your plans for life. Well, we have a bunch of episodes coming up soon. The very next one happens, are you ready for this? Tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, I sit down with Jeremy McDonald, who serves on our church team at Connexus Church, and he basically unpacks my brain when it comes to church growth. So if you're interested in that, we will talk about uh, church growth and everything I've learned. Well, here's an excerpt from that episode. Uh, At first, I said to my podcast producer, I said, hey, you handle that one. I'm fine with it. Then I had an appointment. I forgot that I said she was going to handle it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know whether I like this or not. And I jump back in and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want this thing to grow. You want it to scale. I said, you know what? You make the call. I trust you. Just And that is a really hard move for a lot of leaders to make. But it's one of those, those really hard things you have to do where you release and you delegate. And the challenge, I think, in the early years when you're, when you're growing and you're scaling is that sometimes, particularly if you have some gifts in the area, you might be better at it than the people that you're releasing it to, but you've still got to release it if you want the cause to grow. Because otherwise, uh, you know, at 200, if you're the person who does everything, you're either going to burn out uh, if you grow to 300 or your church will shrink back down to 170, 180 or even 120, the level at which you can personally service it. And then when you go to the thousand barrier, the thousand barrier, I was, I was just on a call with some leaders the other day on this, and they're like, we've been stuck at seven, 800 for a long time. Well, one of the key barriers for people trying to pass a thousand is simply this, how many decisions still cross your desk? So that's tomorrow. We will talk about jumpstarting the growth of dying and stagnant churches, how to scale church growth barriers, and uh, how to get beyond a thousand attenders and a whole lot more. If you subscribe, you get it absolutely free and you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are two of the premium venues these days. I also use the Overcast app. I love that one. And guys, thank you so much for listening. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.